Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 4th of October 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joining, joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, we're going to lead off today with uh, an article on the UK Column uh, website uh, called There Is No Pandemic. It's written by Ian Davis, and he's covering uh, some research by uh, an independent statistician uh, who's using the pseudonym John D. Now, this was published uh, at the end of last week. Should have had it on Friday's programme, uh, but uh, it's here now. And the thing is, uh, this seems to be an analysis of data which has come from a hospital trust, uh, which is not public. The data is not public at this point. Um, and so uh, based on the analysis, I mean, John D. it says here, looked at more than 160,000 ad admissions via the emergency department of a busy hospital. His analysis shows that for an unnamed NHS trust between the 1st of January 2021 and the 13th of June 2021, of the 2,102 admissions COVID as co uh, coded as COVID-19, only 9.7 had supporting diagnosis of symptomatic disease. For the remaining 90%, uh, there was no discernible clinical reason to, to describe them as COVID-19 patients. However, they were all admitted uh, with that uh, label. Uh, and uh, he's talking about people going in with, with sprained ankles and, uh, you know, uh, stomach aches and this kind of thing um, being uh, listed as COVID-19 when, in fact, they weren't. Now, as I say, this has come from a data set which has apparently uh, come as a, about as a result of a leak. Uh, John D, um, although we are in contact with him, or Ian is in contact with him at least, is not uh, making his real name uh, public because he is a retired uh, member of the NHS or he's worked for the NHS in the past. So uh, he is at this point keeping his, uh, his identity secret. Um, and the point is that the data that he has access to is not publicly available through the normal uh, channels, ONS or other government or NHS data sets. So there's no real way to verify it. Uh, and so really what we're saying at this point is uh, that this is our analysis of John Dee's work. Um, it's up to the government at this point to deny uh, that that is uh, correct, because at this point, as far as we can see, it's correct if we take it on face value. Um, and. Uh, uh, I would be calling on full fact uh, to get involved at this point and help discover the truth. Well, that'd be really good, wouldn't it, uh, Mike, if we could get full fact to actually have a look at this article and tell us why it was wrong, because at the moment it seems that the evidence stacks up. So we'll, we'll wait with interest. Yes. Uh, now, uh, a reminder that uh, tomorrow uh, in Wales, the Welsh Government is taking uh, a vote on whether to progress or proceed with COVID passports. Um, and uh, Big Brother Watch here uh, tweeting this out, urgent Wales will vote on vaccine passports this Tuesday. Uh, take action. Uh, use our email tool to send Senate members uh, emails to oppose the discriminatory, discriminatory COVID IDs and so on and join a demonstration on Tuesday the 5th of October uh, at the Senate on, uh, between 2 and 7 p.m. So uh, people often, Brian, asking what they can do. It seems that if they're in Wales, that seems like a good start. Well, it's a good start to actually be doing something, Mike. We just put up, we had an email as well about this. So it's obviously important for people uh, in Wales. So this is just saying, please, could you give it a mention, which we've done. We will be demonstrating outside from two o'clock. Um, this is the key thing, isn't it? The people are now 
um, standing up to be counted and taking action. We would say, as always, be polite, be very well informed, because this means you can discuss the subject with anybody that comes across your path, and that's a very good thing to do. And the more responsible and peaceful uh, you are, the more powerful the demonstration is. So we're going to wish you success on that basis. But this is ultimately what people have got to do is challenge wherever possible. Indeed. Now, a uh, day or two ago, the BBC pushed out a video clip about children and heart conditions. Uh, let's just have a look at a few seconds of it. My name is Jem O'Reilly. At 16 years old, I was diagnosed with a heart condition, which means I have to be really careful with my health. Activities such as running could be dangerous, potentially causing sudden death for someone like me. And I am not alone. They found out that I had an undiagnosed heart condition that could easily send my pulse to over 250 be uh, beats per minute. Finn's heart condition nearly killed him after going on a bike ride. Okay, so it, it went on to talk about, uh, you know, footballers dropping, down, dropping dead on the football pitch or at least uh, requiring emergency hospital treatment and so on. Now, the BBC has uh, covered this uh, in the past. Uh, so when was this? This was uh, February this year. Alex Reid, death, heart conditions and young going undetected. And they're talking about uh, undiagnosed health conditions, uh, heart conditions in the young. Uh, but this goes back to 2018. I was age 24 and dead for five minutes, uh, another BBC article on the same uh, issue. And uh, what struck me, and I'm just asking the question here for Brian and David, um, bearing in mind the issue of, of myocarditis and other heart-related issues for young people uh, and COVID-19 vaccines, uh, is it sensible, David, maybe I could bring you onto the programme and ask this question, is it sensible that if we've got, as the BBC claims, something like 80,000 undiagnosed uh, young people with heart conditions in the country um, to be so lax in our concern about uh, uh, the, the potential outcomes if we require mass vaccination of, of young people? Oh, indeed, it's, it's not. And you would think that you would think that the BBC and other organisations like them would be more responsible. It illustrates just the sort of risk that you run when you when you mandate and force and cajole an entire population into taking the same medication without any regard for the individual variations, including unknown variations, in the health of the individual. Uh, it, it seems reckless um, to be pushing the vaccine in the way they're doing. And this uh, does show that they, they, they have no excuse. You know, they do realise that there are undiagnosed conditions of, of, of serious type in the in the population, including in the young, uh, and that that uh, there should be caution uh, taken. Um, so, uh, David, how many times do you think during the uh, course of that uh, video clip that the BBC released the other day and their articles, their, their other recent articles on that, did they mention uh, vaccination, do you think, in the context of, of young people with undiagnosed heart conditions? I would confidently predict zero. I think that is correct. At which point I think we should just remind the audience, particularly people who may be new to the UK column, that the MHRA, responsible uh, for the health of people under the vaccine uh, programme, collects data via the yellow card 
vaccine adverse reaction data, but so far has not shown, has not demonstrated the public in any shape or form that it has taken that data and proved that despite all of the millions of adverse effects recorded, that the vaccines are actually safe to the public. Mm. So, so we've got an MHRA that just continues to trickle along in the background without doing any upfront publicly available work demonstrating that the vaccines are safe. Um, so, David, let's uh, move north of the border then and, uh, and the NHS. And the question then is, uh, uh, does the NHR, how's the NHS doing at the moment? Well, this is an article in The Scotsman, and it's reporting Professor Paul Gray, who was chief executive of NHS Scotland, so he ran the whole show for six years up until 2019. And he says the, the NHS requires a whole system reform, whatever that means exactly. We'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, he said that the, the problems of COVID only brought the date forward. Um, so it, he's, he's talking about uh, radical reform. He wants an end to what he terms the political bun fight over budgets. Um, and uh, he says that the service isn't equipped to tackle the challenges ahead. I, I do wonder why he wasn't saying that when he was still in charge, but he wasn't, but he is now. Um, so he's writing for an independent think tank, Reform Scotland. Um, and he, he wants an end to the political bun fight while people suffer and die. So very emotive language here. Uh, he urged politicians to stop arguing about increasing investment to address major problems like waiting times, claiming uh, that it was no more than posturing. Well, that's probably correct. Um, without a redesign of the way that resources are used. And he went on, he said, pointing to visible failures in access or promising to fix those failures, uh, largely visible through waiting times, without a willingness to engage on system design or restructuring, the way resources are applied is no more than posturing. This is true, of course. He continues, uh, unless the opposition is prepared to go beyond the, uh, the government of the day so beating the government of the day over the head with the present situation, and unless the government is willing to engage constructively in radical change and stop arguing about increasing investment, record investment in, in something isn't, that isn't working won't make it work, and we will go on this merry-go-round. It's time for us to look to Sweden, the Netherlands, Alaska, and other international examples, embrace local decision-making, um, the voluntary sector to recognise where the private sector adds value, and to create the health and care service for the future. Uh, with access, quality, and sustainability at its core. So, lots of buzzwords. Now, what he's saying there is we, we nationalised, 1947, we nationalised our entire health sector and we put it under political control. And he's now arguing that the problem is that it's under political control and decisions are being made politically. But he's not really showing a way forward. He's glimpsing dimly the nature of the problem with the NHS, which has been building since day one, because central planning and Stalinist economics don't work. Um, how can you plan something where there are no price signals? How can you plan something where it's run bureaucratically? It's, it, it's not uh, run to the, to the benefit of the customer, of the patient. Um, it's run um, by ad administrative and managerial means. He sees the problem, but he doesn't see it clearly, and he's not speaking clearly about what the solution is. And I think this is very interesting that someone who ran the organisation for six years uh, and has a professorship to his name still can't speak with any sort of clarity about what the solution actually is. 
Uh, David, could, could we add to that that perhaps this is because what has actually been done to the NHS has been very cleverly done. The NHS has been increasingly subdivided so the people within the particular specialisations, whether it's NHSX or NHS leadership or any of the other um, NHS um, specialist sectors that have been set up. People don't know what's happening in those other organisations. And of course, the privatisation has just come in at pace. So the NHS is not the organisation that it was originally. And most people don't realise that it is effectively gone as a public service. It's been, it's been changed into something which is a sort of hybrid and this, this is where a lot of the problems are coming from. So I can, I'm going to say that I can understand where a lot of people who've worked in the NHS will look at it, see the problems, but they don't understand what's actually caused this. Um, okay, well, look, uh, let's move on to the, well, what the mainstream press considers the biggest story of the year or the decade or something else. Uh, the Pandora Papers, as it's called, because they've opened Pandora's box. Uh, so here is the International Consortium of uh, Investigative Journalists and their uh, front page on their website this morning, which has changed now because uh, it seemed like their website wasn't able to cope with the load. And so they've had to remove all the glossy graphics and so on. Uh, offshore havens and hidden riches of world leaders and billionaires explored, exposed sorry, in unprecedented leak. Um, and they have a, a nice little... Uh, image there of uh, where the 336 politicians in the P Pandora Papers uh, come from. Now, uh, it's not just politicians, it's, it's uh, corporate leaders, it's all kinds of people in this. Um, and, uh, but what's interesting is that Britain is uh, well up there uh, with Brazil and uh, Mexico and some African countries uh, in the level of uh, corruption amongst politicians that we're seeing. Uh, they're certainly saying that Ukraine is the worst and Russia uh, comes uh, a close second, um, but uh, although there are 336 politicians listed on the Pandora in the Pandora Papers, uh, they decided that they would uh, focus on Tony Blair in particular, uh, and that certainly is what the mainstream press has done today. So who's involved in this? Well, the BBC, the Guardian, um, Pandora's Papers uh, reveal hidden riches of Putin's inner circle, says the Guardian, um, and uh, and many uh, you know many others. Uh, not just, I mean, the focus seems to be an attempt to push a lot of the corruption onto, onto Putin and Russia, um, but uh, it certainly seems to be a global problem. So the question is, what are we looking at here? Is it a global, uh, gl global corruption, or is it just that uh, once you become a leader, you just get involved in these kind of shell schemes? Well, that's, that's quite a question, Mike, for, for, for the news segment. I think the instant the answer to that is that we've got a mix of things going on. The corruption's there. Corruption's always been going on in the world. But now we can see that major corruption has come in through the back door into the UK if we focus it a bit like this. So we're now seeing huge sums of money swilling around the UK politicians and the political parties, but actually no real answers as to, as to what's going on. So is the money controlling the politicians? Is this, is this what's happening? Or are the politicians strong enough to be in amongst the big um, financed organisations and the corrupt hedge funds and the politicians are controlling it that way around? I rather doubt it. I think the money is controlling the politicians.
Um, which brings us on to your segment, uh, the BBC's headline, Pandora Papers, Secret Wealth and Dealings of World Leaders Exposed. Are they extremely excited to be running this uh, this information? I, I mean, is there anything in this first start that anybody isn't really aware of already? Uh, well, in as much as that they focused on the Pandora's Papers, but of course, as you can see from the, uh, the image, they've also very much gone for the uh, Putin and the Russians are behind it all. Um, Tony Blair does get a mention, but this is only in relation to the purchase of a property in London where apparently he didn't have to pay um, tax on that, that purchase because it was via an offshore company. Uh, so Tony Blair got away quite lightly, um, but I got interested in how this thing had been put together and what the BBC's involvement was. So if you go into the BBC uh, article, this came up, the examination of the files is the largest organized by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, with more than 650 reporters taking part. And I thought that's some coordination effort to have 650 people spread across the world, all working together with a common purpose in order to uh, identify this fraud and corruption. Um, so I just worked my way through the article, see what it says. Um, so this is uh, the BBC panorama in a joint investigation with The Guardian. So now you're led to believe that this is really BBC panorama with The Guardian. And then it mentions the other media partners that have apparently got access to nearly 12 million documents. So my brain says this is massive. How is this being coordinated? How is it being funded and who is funding it? So obviously that was the key uh, glossy headline here. But I then switched to have a look at the organization itself. So here's ICIJ. And uh, what do they say? Well, it's a unique organization, US-based nonprofit, small resourceful newsroom, and uh, a global network of reporters. So you have a small organization, Mike. It's uh, doing a really good job but it's got a global network and it control millions of pages of data. Um, is it as simple as that? Well, this is a bit more here, uh, just so you can see what they're, what they're actually saying. And it's uh, media organizations who work together to investigate the most important stories in the world. So this seems to be a really powerful little organization. How does it work? Uh, well, it says here, trusted members in the network, 280 of the best investigative uh, reporters from more than 100 countries and territories. And then we get more of a clue because it says we also partner with more than 100 media organizations from the world's most renowned outlets, including the BBC, the New York Times, The Guardian, and the uh, Asai Simbum, whatever that is, to small regional nonprofit investigative centers. Now, what I was interested here is that they declare very clearly that the BBC and The Guardian are major players within this organization. So it's not that the BBC has been working with The Guardian and other players. The BBC and The Guardian have been at the center of this organization. And uh, down the bottom, we get a bit more here. The ICIJ core team is small but ambitious. We want to empower our readers to engage with their local communities about issues of global importance, such as, quote, broken systems and abuses of powers. And we want to do that by harnessing the enormous strength of our extensive network. So 
This isn't just about reporting. This is about getting local communities engaged in issues of what they say are global importance. And now we've got in broken systems and abuses of power. So um, I wonder whether it's a coincidence that it seems to me at least that at the moment the UK is a broken system. And we've now got ICIJ helping to focus attention on a broken UK government and the politicians. If I just pause there, I don't know whether you'd like to reply to that, Mike or David, but it seems to me that there's something a lot deeper going on here than just a report on major corruption. Yeah, well, I was just looking through the UK investigative journalists who are members of the uh, ICIJ while you were speaking there. So I, I, I picked on the first one on the list, uh, James Ball. James Ball is an activist. He wrote a book, Post-Truth, How Bullshit Conquered the World. 2016 marked the dawn of the post-truth era, era of the year um, saw two shock election results, Donald Trump and the decision by the UK to leave the EU. And on he goes. This is standard issue Guardian stuff. This is political spin. This isn't investigative journalism. So that alone, so when we look to the first one, that causes me some concern. Um, David, I'd just say to our audience that when we do the UK column live, the interaction between us is completely unplanned. So fascinating that you got stuck in straight away with having a look at the people. Uh, I looked at the people. I looked at the organisations. We're not saying anybody's done anything wrong. We're just having a look at them. So sorry, if I just come back on that, here's the Bay and Paul Foundation uh, that's mentioned as one of the funders. Um, what can we see on this? Well, it says our vision is of vibrant communities whose skillful collaborations assure just and ecologically robust outcomes for present and future generations. Well, that's all pretty glossy. Uh, mission is very interesting. Our mission is to foster and accelerate initiatives that prepare, quote, agents of change working to strengthen our social compact and develop authentic solutions to the challenges of this pivotal century. So their mission, one of the uh, key founders and supporters, is to prepare agents of change. So could it be that this whole story, apart from exposing corruption, which most certainly exists, has got a far deeper geopolitical agenda? And I would suggest it has. Uh, this is a list of supporters. So we've got Arnold Ventures, encourage people to look at them. Barbara Streisand is in here because uh, um, a world uh, expert, I think, on what reporting, mm. apparently. Uh, Ford Foundation, Green Park Foundation. That one doesn't seem to let you very close to it. Uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Uh, this one caught my eye because I've come across this organization before, Luminate. And down here, we've got our old friend Open Society Foundations. So this is a very small organization, apparently able to coordinate hundreds of journalists across the world. Um, it's trust us is the, uh, is the line, but we're now seeing that actually it gets deeper. So if we have a look at Luminate, um, this is what they've got to say. We support organizations and entrepreneurs working to enable people to participate in and shape the issues impacting society. This is not about straightforward journalism. This is a, a gender in geopolitics. And so I'm asking if this sounds familiar. 
Uh, if we have a look down here, it says our work in all these areas is focusing on creating long-term change while remaining agile enough to respond to political and social shifts. So if you expose massive fraud and corruption, that would give you the ideal uh, breeding ground to then run your geopolitical uh, agenda, whatever it is. And if we bring up this lady from Luminated, again, not suggesting she's done anything wrong in any way, but I think we are allowed to say it's interesting that when we have a look at her down here, it says she was a data and technology fellow at Open Society Foundation. So we've got a little bit of a revolving door here between reporting uh, in the media and these geopolitical change organizations. So if I just uh, end it off really by saying that the, the press have been reporting for a long time about huge sums of money coming into the British political system. So this is July 2021. Tories take 280,000 from Russian linked donors in a year since the report called for a crackdown. Uh, this is September. Tory donor's husband given $8 million by Kremlin-linked oligarch. Uh, insider here, um, the date on this one's July 2020. 14 ministers in Boris Johnson's government received funding from donors linked to Russia. And if we go back in time, of course, we're into Theresa May. Uh, this is 2018. Theresa May has accepted more than 200,000 in donations from ex-Russian defence chiefs since becoming PM. And the man in the frame is Alexander Tomenko, ex-chair of that Russian ministry agency, who apparently donated thousands. And this one here from March 2018, Tories break Theresa May's vow to ban Russian donors. 820,000 Russian money has come into the Tories since Theresa May became prime minister. Uh, but we're led to believe that the uh, Russians are the threat and our government is defending us from the Russians. Ah, but you see, that's uh, £820,000. It's actually multiple millions of Russian money, but that's not Russian Putin money. It's not Putin Russian money. And so then the, you've got to ask the question, how much of that money has gone towards Britain's position, anti-Putin position and integrity initiative and the willingness to push that kind of, of agenda? I don't know. So just to set the scene there, Mike, what, what you're talking about is the expulsion of, uh, of uh, oligarchs by Putin, many of whom came to London, many of whom got involved politically in at least helping to support the Tory party. Uh, this is the same Tory party that says, of course, it's upholding a squeaky clean political existence. Yes. Uh, David, any final thoughts? The Ford Foundation, uh, if I remember correctly, and uh, the interview with uh, Norman Dodd uh, talking about the work of the Reese Committee into the tax-exempt foundations, he discovered that the Ford Foundation's aim was to so change the American society that it could be rolled into one uh, organization with Soviet Russia without there being any conflict. So um, we know that these tax-exempt foundations have extremely radical political agendas. That's on record. That was a, a, a committee of the uh, Houses of Congress in the United States. Um, so the fact that they are funding this also causes a great deal of concern. Indeed. Okay, well, um, let's uh, have a look at another example of corruption then. Um, not Pandora Papers as such, but uh, this is Zero Hedge saying Fed Vice Chair Clarita 
traded millions one day before Powell emergency pandemic statement. Um, so uh, they're talking, Zero Hedge here talking about uh, two Federal Reserve uh, presidents, uh, the, the uh, resignations of the Boston and Dallas Federal Reserve presidents, uh, Rosengren and Kaplan, um, amid an outcry over the recently revealed day trading activities, which benefited them as a direct result of mon monetary policy decisions that they were explicitly and directly involved in. So they were busy trading and uh, running day trades uh, while they were busy setting policy, uh, which affected the prices, and therefore they effectively had uh, an insider insider information, but they haven't been prosecuted for it. They've simply resigned. Well, one's re one has retired and the other has resigned for health reasons. Um, uh, but uh, Zero Hedge goes on to say, uh, overnight, the government ethics office published forms which showed that none other than centrist vice, uh, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarita may be the next to, quote, retire. Uh, he was trading in and out of millions in securities on February the 27th, 2020, just one day before Fed, Fed Chair Paul issued an extremely bullish emergency statement hinting at possible policy action uh, as the pandemic worsened. When contacted by Bloomberg, a Fed spokesman for the vice chair said that Vice Chair Clarita's financial disclosure for 2020 shows transactions that represent a pre-planned rebalancing to his accounts, adding that the transactions were executed uh, prior to his involvement in deliberations on Federal Reserve actions to respond to the emergence of the coronavirus and not during a blackout period. Uh, the selected funds were chosen with the prior approval of the board's ethics official. So there you go, David, chosen with the prior approval of the boards of the Federal Reserve Board's ethics uh, official. So we should feel fine about that. Nothing to see there. Nothing to see here. Move along is always the claim. We will watch this one closely. Uh, yes, we shall indeed. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there, and that would be very much appreciated. Also, please do share our material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, once again, thank you very much to everybody that has bought a UK Column hoodie. That is very much appreciated. Um, and finally, uh, on Sunday the 10th, uh, then we're hosting Pierce Robinson and... Uh, the uh, well, a virtual symposium on propaganda and uh, the 9-11 uh, global war on terror. And uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting event because uh, what they're saying here is that the global war on terror instigated after the events of 9-11 led to the war in Afghanistan and the manufactured preemptive invasion of Iraq. It also set the conditions for conflicts for Libya, Syria and Yemen, amongst others. And so they're going to look at uh, uh, analysis developed by researchers who have explored key aspects surrounding the propaganda campaigns that served to support the global war on terror. Um, so, uh, for example, uh, Piers Robinson will be talking about the uh, understanding the war on terror as a propaganda event, uh, particularly between 2001 and 2003, but a whole host of other interesting uh, speakers at that, including uh, Richard Elfritz, uh, David Hughes, Matt Campbell, and Brody. Uh, Oliver Boyd Barrett, Lucy Morgan Edwards, and uh, Jeremy Keenan. Um, so this isn't really uh, focusing on the events of the day as such, but really the impact and what has happened since. Um, and uh, maybe that's an area that uh, uh, has some overlap with what we're experiencing today. It's going to be fascinating to have a look back when we see all the things that have happened since then, Mike. Yes. Uh, well, an email here sent in. Uh, we were able to see the detail of this email, but we're just going to give the key text for our viewers. 
Uh, it's about vaccination consent. It's come from a school which I can tell you is in the southwest of England. So the email is back to a parent. Thank you for the email. The school is not trying to obscure any answer or ignore its legal responsibility. The school is not legally responsible for consent. This is between the NHS and parents. I've told you this before and have also stated we will not engage in a discussion about the immunization program nor the issue of consent. All I can tell you is this, consent is requested from the parents via an email we're asked to forward. If the parents are separated, it's for the parents to come to a decision together and any disagreement cannot be dealt with by the school. Consent is requested for each immunization individually and the school holds no record of this data. I understand it's a concerning time and people have a broad range of issues to vaccines. You've asked many questions about this issue and I believe we have offered in good faith answers to these. Any further queries regarding this must now be directed to the NHS using the details we've already sent. So I find that fascinating that the school simply uh, allows the vaccinations to take place, um, but apparently it's not involved in the consent issue at all. Hmm. Yes. Well, okay. We'll, no. we'll leave the question mark hanging. Indeed. Okay, let's, sorry, David, did you have something you wanted to, to comment on there? Oh, I was just wondering, gentlemen, whether you think the school, in fact, has a duty of care uh, for the children that are, uh, uh, they are looking after uh, to make sure that consent and something as important as this is, is, is correctly given and that there's no undue pressure brought. Um, do you think they have a duty of care? Well, I think that's a very good question, yes. They certainly have a duty of care, of course, because while the children are in their care, the school is completely responsible for everything that happens to them. But of course, what the school is doing here is simply slope-shouldering and saying, ah, uh, because this is a procedure which has been prescribed by the government and in particular the NHS, um, we don't have to um, adhere to that duty of care. We leave that to the... NHS. This is further breakdown of, of the system because people no longer know what their duties are. They don't know what the law is and they're not using common sense to decide how to solve problems. So I think this is more of the orchestrated breakdown. Um, right. Now let's move on. Uh, here's Oliver Dowden, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. He's a very excited man because uh, data is now one of the most important resources in the world. Um, it fuels the global economy, drives science and innovation, and powers the technology we rely upon to work, shop, and connect with friends and family. I hope everybody agrees with that. That seems a perfect uh, uh, pressy of what's going on at the moment. Uh, now that we've left the EU, uh, we have the freedom to create a bold new data regime, one that unleashes data's power across the country and society. Our ultimate aim is to create a more pro-growth and pro-innovative uh, innovation data regime whilst maintaining the UK's world-leading data protection standards. Uh, I wonder how much we believe that last half of the sentence. I don't think so. Uh, so there's a consultation begun, and we'll have more details on this uh, on Wednesday's programme, but there's a consultation begun uh, to uh, allow people to, to perhaps get involved in shaping uh, the new uh, British GDPR, if we want to call it that. Uh, but David, uh, data, the most important commodity, we don't need to eat. 
don't need to eat. We, as long as we've got, <laughs> as long as we've got data about how much we're not eating, that's that's the main thing. Yes, um, data is 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 viewed um, strangely by government because we've been through the whole the whole thing in Scotland, of course, with the with the name person scheme, where um, your data was to be uh, was to be used with or without your consent. And data regarding your children was to be used without your knowledge, uh, in order that the wise state could correctly direct their lives. Now, I'd be very interested to see if any hint of that comes through in what the UK government uh, are planning for the use of data, because it's that approach, it's that big brother approach that is that is the the fundamental problem uh, that we have to um, guard against. Uh, indeed, and of course, what's being built at the moment, David, uh, is a, a a bio surveillance state, effectively, and uh, uh, that particular data aspect is is one that the government is wanting to get much more flexible control over, uh, because GDPR is pretty uh, well. It's pretty tricky for them. It puts limitations on them. So, uh, what how are they going to how are they going to provide? Uh, uh, genomic research, how are they going to do all these things? If there's a proper data protection regime in place, we're going to have to slacken that off significantly, right? Uh, well, th these are these are the, 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 cru the crucial issues. Um, name person fell because they could not be resolved. They were literally unresolvable un under the GDPR system. Um, again, are we going to move the goalposts? Time will tell. Yes. Um, okay, let's move on then to uh, well, Facebook. And uh, well, here she is. The whistleblower has been outed. Um, and uh, she is claiming that Facebook is only concerned about growth over safety. So this is Frances Hawn, or Hogan, I should say, 37. Uh, she worked as a pro uh, product manager on the Vivid Misinformation team at Facebook. And she was interviewed by 60 Minutes uh, over the weekend. Uh, she said she left Facebook earlier in the year. She was exasperated with the company. Uh, but before she left, she made sure that she copied uh, a series of internal memos and other documents. And she said that uh, she leaked these documents uh, because Facebook uh, was repeatedly prioritizing growth over safety. What kind of safety is she talking about? Well, online safety, of course. And I, I'm not really going to say too much more about this, David, but it is just fascinated me that, that here we are right at the point that the UK government is about to introduce this online safety bill which is going to become the global framework for safe, for online safety, um, at least as far as uh, the West is concerned, uh, the so-called West. Uh, and uh, we have another whistleblower telling us, uh, you know, how terrible. Uh, I mean, there are many things to criticize Facebook, many, many of them. Uh, but uh, Facebook, I think, and uh, YouTube and so on have been pretty uh, serious about their deplatforming in recent months and years. Um, so this is really uh, more propaganda, in my view, anyway. Convenient. Very convenient, conveniently yeah. timed uh, to make sure it's there just in time for uh, the online safety bill to come into Parliament. The timing is 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 very interesting, but so too is the way that the argument's been framed. Right, you, the choice you're offered is growth or safety. The issue of freedom, free speech, diversity of opinion challenging um, official lines, speaking truth to power, those uh, don't even get a mention. They've been deleted. 
They have indeed, because <laughs> they're very, they're very in inconvenient to talk about. We'll have a look at the BBC's comment on on the freedoms a little bit later. Um, well, here's the National Crime Agency, and uh, well, there is uh, Graham Bigger, and he's been appointed interim deputy director general uh, as of today, um, because uh, Dame Lynn Owens is stepping down today. Uh, so since joining the National Crime Agency, he's been Director General of the National Economic Crime Centre. Uh, he was previously Home Office Director of National Security, providing leadership on areas of counterterrorism strategy and hostile state activity. Uh, and this appointment follows Dame Lynn's recent announcement of her retirement. But sorry, coming back to uh, Graham Bigger for a second. Uh, as I say, he was the Home Office Director of National Security. Uh, but he was also he also worked for the Ministry of Defence in a series of positions, including Chief of Staff to the Defence Secretary from 2013 till 2016. So uh, let's see what he had to say. I'm honoured and humbled to be asked to lead the National Crime Agency for this period. I look forward to working with our dedicated officers and all our partners delivering our vital mission of protecting the public and leading the UK's fight against serious and organised crime. Um, so it's all our partners, again, uh, because this, of course, the National Crime Agency has become uh, a partner organization to many others, but not quite as uh, as important or as big a partner organization as the National Cyber Force. We'll come on to them in a second. But anyway, uh, movement at the top of that particular organization, and we'll see where that goes. Are you going to say something? Well, I, I just wondered whether Graham Bigger would be getting going with um, getting into the... Um corruption which we began the news with we've got massive fraud and corruption we've got millions and billions of corrupt money coming into the country some of it allegedly coming into the tory party so presumably the national crime agency is flat out now on getting Looking to at these leaked files and getting through it. Yes. yes i would have thought so okay well we'll we will report that with great interest in the coming days and weeks. Uh, but let's come on to the uh, National Cyber Force because, of course, the nasty Russians and nasty Chinese are running cyber attacks against us all the time. And there's lots of disinformation and misinformation coming in from those countries too through their useful idiots in the UK and, and other places. Uh, but the National Cyber Force is a fascinating organization because it's all about transforming the country's cyber capabilities to protect the UK. Now, last week and the week before, we were talking about the integrated operating concept, this new uh, uh, sort of way of working for the British military and the British military to being turned from a defensive organization into an offensive organization. And this is very much uh, in the center of that. So, so the, the National Cyber Force is considers itself an offensive organization, um, it, but it's helping to transform the UK's cyber capabilities to disrupt adversaries and keep the UK safe. Um, but here's the thing, the other term that we introduced you to last week once again, was this term fusion and fusion doctrine. Uh, because, and this is another example of it, the National Cyber Force together uh, draws together personnel from Intelligence, Cyber and Security Agency, GCHQ, the Ministry of Defence, the Secret Intelligence Service, that's MI6, the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory under one unified command for the first time. So it was originally launched in November last year um, so why are we mentioning it today? Because they have uh, had their, uh, their HQ, uh, their campus uh, uh, identified. They've announced where it's going to be, and it's going to be here. Here's an image of it. Um, and uh, this is uh, Salisbury. Uh, and, well, this is going to cement the Northwest region's position as a cyber center of the UK. 
GCHQ already have an office in Manchester and uh, the city is Europe's fastest growing uh, major tech cluster with more than 15% of Manchester's population employed in the digital, creative and technology sectors. But if you look closer, closely at that image, you'll notice something a bit strange about it. Did you notice it, Brian? Well, I haven't yet, actually. I'm going to well, be really what does honest. What it say I'm on the sign? If you're, if you're oh, outside, well, this, this is a glasses issue, it, I'm afraid. Yeah. It says on the sign, <laughs> BAE Systems. Right. right. So the National Cyber Force, which brings together GCHQ, the Ministry of Defence, the Secret Intelligence Service, and the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, is going to be based on a British aerospace, a BAE Systems site. Right. So... Um, Sorry, but how is an issue of national security, uh, an agency of national security, based on the site with a private company? Is this normal? Well, it's becoming increasingly normal. It's not desirable in any way, Mike, but it's becoming increasingly normal. We're seeing all sorts of uh, private agencies integrated in our policing and security systems. Have you any thoughts on this, David? I mean, it's it's very it's always very difficult to separate the private sector from the public because there's always contractors. But the, the location does seem odd. Um, it, it it certainly isn't how it would have been done. Um, a major national security agency would have always been the lead organisation. They would have had the property. They would have had the premises. They would have had the kudos, and the there would be no doubt that the private sector would be very much secondary in that field to the position of the, of, of the government organisation. That does now seem to be much more fluid. Uh, yes, and uh, if you didn't see uh, some of our coverage on these issues last week uh, and also the Friday before, then please do go back to those programmes and, and have a look. Um, David, uh, let's come on to... Uh, sorry, did you have something else? No, I was just looking at the, the latest tweet from the National Crime Agency. We've got a very touching uh, LGBT rainbow logo these days. Um, visiting uh, the uh, video game conference in the 7th to 10th of October, question mark. Have a keen interest in coding, gaming or cybersecurity, question mark. Come and see us at the careers fair to learn how to avoid doing things that might put your future at risk. That's a bit creepy as a way of recruiting people, don't you think? Uh, yes, yes. I think there's a little bit more detective work to be done on the National Crime Agency, uh, but uh, the Director of Intelligence is called Steve Smart, so they've got themselves well organised. Okay, okay, let's uh, move on to uh, the Metropolitan Police then, David, and the Telegraph's headline here was officers investigated for allegedly sharing racist misogynistic messages with Wayne Cousins. Yes, so here we go. We've got a major problem in the police. Um, the, the faith in the police uh, has been uh, hugely undermined by uh, a, a, a man who used his position as a police officer to abduct and brutally murder a young woman. Um, and what we're going to concentrate on is his WhatsApp group and the fact that some people on there may have said things that were not particularly nice. That's the leadership we get from uh, Christina Dick, and I think she's rather missing the point. Um, this article goes on to point out um, that uh, the officer, um, um, Cousins, uh, who's, who was the perpetrator here, 
um, had such a reputation in the force for sexual deviance that he was known to his colleagues as the rapist. Do you not think that's maybe a bit more significant than the WhatsApp group? I would suggest it is. Um, the Telegraph continues, it's also an open secret that Cousins was a drug user with a taste for extreme pornography. At what point was the was the safety of the public being considered here, gentlemen? I, I mean, it just it doesn't seem to have been at all. It continues, three days before he abducted Sarah Everard, he exposed himself at a McDonald's drive-thru restaurant. Staff reported the incident to police who identified his car via CCTV. He was not arrested, leaving him free to kidnap, rape and murder. This is the problem. This is the police covering up for the police, covering up for criminality. This is the sort of thing that has been exposed over and over again on, on YouTube sites like, like Police Abusing Powers. Um, and we know it's endemic. We know it's everywhere in the police. We know it's a major problem. We've had police officers write to us talking about how difficult they find operating, you know, old-fashioned, straightforward, honest police officers who believe in what they're doing, how they feel um, that they can they can barely function in the police now the way it's run and the, and the culture within the force. So uh, the, the Telegraph cont continues, uh, Christina Dick is under pressure to quit. And uh, there's been calls to, uh, for her to resign as she admitted uh, that the murder of Sarah Everard had uh, severely damaged the, quote, precious bond of trust, end quote, between the police and the public. Now, this shows how out of touch Christina Dick is because that precious bond of trust has been damaged by many things over many years and is in a shocking state, even was in a shocking state even before this murder. This has simply brought it into a high resolution. Um, we'll go on here to Pretty Patel, um, who also doesn't seem to be having a really good day identifying the problems. Police must take harassment of women seriously, she says. Now, that does rather suggest that she accepts that police have not been taking harassment of women seriously, and that that's a, a concern. Um, it, it must raise the bar, she says, by taking harassment and flashing of women more seriously. I mean, I, I would I would be astonished if 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 a sexual crime like it, it, like flashing was not taken seriously. I mean, surely um, that that's only going to escalate into even more serious crimes. Surely that would be taken seriously. I'm astonished by that. Um, and um, the BBC also report on this, and they talk. They, they raise some of the questions that the Met Police must now face. Um, so they list some of these. Uh, was Cousins' ability to put, pull on the uniform a failure of the system? Is it a wider cultural problem? Uh, how should police and, and leaders and government respond? Um, there is a, a willingness to look the other way here. Uh, there are means and ways of identifying the psychologically unfit. They're not being used. That's a policy decision. Um, the ability to, to follow orders and not think independently and not think in such a way that you might cause difficulty for perhaps not very honest, perhaps corrupt senior officers, seems to me based on some anecdotal evidence I've got, to be part of the recruitment process. If you think independently the police don't want you, that's a problem. This, The problems that the police face here that's been shown by this are enormous. They cannot be underestimated. 
And, and I really don't think that any of these articles are really getting at the severity of the situation. We finish in Scotland here. They say that Everard murder, new verification checks to police Scotland. So now if you're pulled over by a police officer, um, you can ask for, um, uh, in fact, the, the police officer will pro, if he's, on, if he's on his own, if he or she is on their own, um, they will proactively offer you a verification check because the assumption here seems to be one police officer might be a, a rapist or a murderer, but two working together will never be because you're safe with two. I'm not entirely convinced that that's, that's quite covering it. Um, so they'll, they'll offer you uh, basically a chance to speak to the control room. And um, then once it's, it's confirmed that the, the person is in fact a police officer and is on duty, then you're safe. Now, uh, the murder of Sarah Everett wasn't on duty, but he was a police officer. He had a warrant card. I'm not sure that this really goes a particularly long way to solving the problem. And it certainly won't be reassuring many women who might feel very vulnerable at the moment. Um, and the BBC, uh, we say a lot of bad things about the BBC, but to be fair to the BBC in Manchester here, um, on the back of this, I actually went to one of the victims of the most prolific rape, rapist in the history of Britain, uh, a man who raped men um, using drugs to um, uh, subdue them. And uh, he's been convicted of raping 48 men, and he's, the suspicion is he's raped actually 200. Uh, so that, that illustrates it's not just a, an issue of women, it's an issue of, of, of predatory uh, predatory men in all uh, walks of life and um, uh, this uh, victim spoke out, this victim called Daniel spoke out uh, about uh, what happened to him and to, to, to raise um, uh, warnings uh, about staying safe uh, when out socialising in uh, some of our bigger cities um, and that was a very brave thing for him to do, and I think it is it is a, a worthwhile article there from the BBC. Well, David, I just add that I noticed that uh, the BBC has said there was an air of crisis inside the police, and of course, if we accept that, just as we've discussed that there's an air of crisis inside the NHS, what we're witnessing here is a complete breakdown of public trust for the police to the extent that if you're approached by a single police constable, you're not sure whether you're safe or not. So this is breakdown of Britain's police. Has this happened by accident? I'm going to suggest it hasn't, because we can go back and see when the policies were introduced into the police, which started the slippery slope to a uh, reduction in standards and morality within the police. So I think we've got to look with a, a wider lens on this. This, to me, smacks of the fact that there's been a deliberate policy to create this crisis in the police. OK, uh, well, we told you it was going to happen, and it has happened. The Ministry of Defence very excited that over 200 military personnel, 100 of which are drivers, will begin fuel deliveries from Monday, having been training with industry partners over the weekend. So one weekend <laughs> of training of, of the... Uh, of the military and they're ready to go, uh, but we can't get uh, HGV drivers uh, out on the streets. Uh, they will be providing temporary support as part of the government's wider action uh, to relieve pressure on petrol stations. So they had some uh, nice pictures there. Uh, so that's all very good. There they are. 
Um, but here's the thing, uh, the general, in general, uh, the whole fuel shortage and food shortage situation is being blamed on Brexit. Now, Patrick on, on Friday, I think, uh, said, well, uh, Brexit is contributing because of the, uh, of the bureaucratic situation on borders and so on. Well, perhaps to a small degree, that's the case. But actually, it's it's much broader than that. And we mentioned we already mentioned that the HGV driver shortage is is EU wide. It's probably even broader than EU wide, but certainly it's one that's not limited to the United Kingdom by any means. Uh, but uh, I'll just point out a couple of headlines from the past here. This is uh, uh, can't quite see what that is. Can you see what that is? I want European, the date. No European. Oh, it doesn't matter. But but oh, uh, the, the headline here is will, will the Green Deal cause food shortages? And now we start to get to a much closer to the, re the reality of the situation here, because this is a very good question to be asking. For example, if we just take the UK, I mean, this is talking about EU level stuff, but if, if we take the UK as an example, the UK is putting money into farmers in order to turn productive land into wildflower meadows and, uh, and woodland. Uh, they've now introduced another new payment uh, to specifically target arable land and turn that into grassland. So take productive arable land, turn it into grassland so that we aren't uh, producing, uh, you know, wheat and other arable food. crops, food in other words. And we're doing that at exactly the time where we've increased the, uh, the biofuels content in, in uh, petrol from 5% to 10%. So we're even taking more food out of the food chain and turning it into fuel. Um, here is... Uh, can I just interject there, yes. Mike? It's the European Business Review. Thank if you. anybody wants to find that article. Okay, and uh, but it goes beyond that even because here is uh, the European Civil Protection Humanitarian Aid Operations uh, of the European Commission and their headline here, uh, Global Report on Food Crisis, Acute Food Insecurity Soars to Five-Year High. This is a genuinely global problem. It's not something which has been caused by Brexit. David, but of course, if we blame it on Brexit, uh, then we can have everybody looking in the wrong wrong direction while we build back better. And if you remember what the uh, Club of Rome said, that the, the the target for all of this is humanity itself. The problem is humanity. Uh, that's what's being uh, targeted. And um, it's basically an anti-human philosophy at its core. It, it is indeed, and it's not going to disappear soon because here's uh, Rishi Sunak, the wonderful Rishi. Uh, whether it's short-term visas, speeding up testing capacity for HGB drivers, of course we should do all these things, and we are doing all these things, and they're claiming that these special visas are only going to last for three or four months, so that's really going to encourage people to come to, to fulfill those roles. But anyway, uh, he went on to say, but we can't wave a magic wand and make global supply chain challenges disappear overnight. That may well be the case. But David, we can't also forget that it was the policy of this government and other governments which caused the problem in the first place. Yes, and how much of it is to do with inflation as well? Uh, we are, we've, been, we've been printing money that's destabilised the economy hugely. People are rushing uh, from cash into real goods. This causes shortages. This is what happens in an early stage of a hyperinflation, Mike. Uh, it is indeed. We'll be coming on to inflation in one second, but just before we do, uh, let's just uh, bring ourselves back to Evergrande uh, that you mentioned uh, a week or so ago, um, because Evergrande has suspended trading on its shares today. Uh, and this is the press release. Um, 
at the, at the request of the company, trading in the shares of the company was halted at 9 a.m. Uh, on the 4th of October 2021, pending the release of the company by the company of an announcement containing inside information about a major transaction. So what is this major transaction? Well, we get a clue from another Chinese company. Uh, here they are, Hobson Development Holdings Limited, uh, because they have also suspended trading of their shares today uh, at the request of Hobson Development Holdings Limited. Uh, trading in the shares of the company on the Stock Exchange of Hong Kong Limited will be halted with effect from 9 a.m. on the 4th of October 2021, pending the release of an announcement in relation to a major transaction of the company under which the company agreed to acquire the shares of a company listed on the stock exchange and the relevant possible mandatory offer to acquire the shares of the target company pursuant to the Hong Kong Code on takeovers and mergers. So it looks like, David, we have a merger or a takeover going on at the moment. Um, will that result in people getting uh, the bonds, uh, the debt being paid? Um, I do wonder about that, or perhaps uh, the terms of the takeover will uh, wipe that lot out. Oh, I don't know about that. I think they'll have serious trouble ex extinguishing that debt because, of course, it's secured um, on a bubble uh, real estate market. And if the, if the actual value of those assets are perhaps only 50% of their book value, then they have uh, and just an enormous problem of solvency. Uh, well, well, do they? Because actually, uh, look at what happened. This was announced a couple of days ago by the Financial Times. Evergrande's bonds snapped up by distressed debt investors. So uh, not wanting to, to be uh, shafted once, they, they want even more of it. So uh, distressed debt funds and individual investors are flocking to bonds issued by Evergrande betting that Beijing will be forced to rescue the country's most indebted company, said the Financial Times. But it looks like it won't be, uh, well, to the degree that everything uh, happens in, in China is, is uh, centrally controlled, but it looks like it's going to be a corporate bailout in this case. Would you, would you invest your money based on what the Chinese government's going to do? I know uh, I wouldn't. No, but then... It, you or I aren't causing these problems in the first place. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're getting, we're not getting access to the free money that the central banks are printing in order to, to make these investments. So. This, this, this is true. If it was free money, I might, I might do otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And let, so let's uh, come on to the issue of inflation then. And here is Euro, Eurostat because uh, you'll be glad to know that uh, the Eurozone's inflation rate has, uh, has hit a 13 year high. It's up to 3.4%. Uh, that's mainly driven by energy prices. As you can see, the thin red line is uh, is what's happening with energy prices, quite a lot higher than everything else. But nonetheless, uh, overall inflation going up as well. It's also affecting CO, the price of CO2, of course. Um, uh, financial statement published uh, by uh, the largest independent trader in liquefied natural gas, which is uh, Gunvor. Here's their website here. Uh, they're saying that uh, uh, gas prices are being driven by financial speculation. No, it couldn't be, could it? Uh, Gunvor uh, trading surged 28% uh, compared to last year. Uh, and uh, so they said the figures suggest big commodity traders, a group also know, that also includes Vital, uh, Trafigura, Glencore and Mercuria, uh, are well positioned to take advantage of the supply crunch that has gripped energy markets and sent gas prices to record highs. So uh, apparently, uh, that uh, is, that, sorry, that was a, a quote from the Financial Times from a couple of days ago. So, uh, you know, what can we say, David? 
financial speculation uh, causing a, a detrimental effect to uh, our daily lives. That couldn't possibly be the case, could it? But this is all rubbish. I mean, the Financial Times really should know better. Supply crunch, citation required. Where's the evidence that there's been a supply crunch? Well, there's none. Right? Exactly so. So that's that's lie number one. Now, and then the other thing is, oh, it's, it's all it's all um, it's all speculation, uh, and 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 market speculations driving it. It's, there's what they're trying to say is. There's nothing real here. Be be reassured that there's no real problem. There is a real problem. The, um, the, F, the FT are lying to you. There's a real problem. Well, I, well, are they? Because, I mean, Christine Lagarde, who, of course, is head of the European Central Bank, she says no problem at all. She says uh, what we're seeing now is mostly a phase of temporary inflation linked to reopening. Uh, so we, we... Sorry, I know you're killing yourself there but anyway so we still need to accommodate monetary policy stance on exit the to, sorry to exit the pandemic safety safely and bring inflation sustainably back to two percent uh that that's that's going to happen oh dear me yes i i there's there's so much and i could i could talk for hours on all the things that were wrong with that last two sentences uh i won't i'll spare you that Yes, yeah, so we'll, we'll do it another time, perhaps. Okay, let's uh, let's come on to Australia, uh, and some Polish MPs have been making a nuisance to themselves. The Polish MPs have been speaking the truth, and it's been quite magnificent. So they went down to the Australian embassy, and they've had a news conference outside the, new, the, the, the embassy. We've got a few stills here, and what they said was, uh, they asked they asked the question, <clears throat> what is the difference uh, between totalitarianism? Uh, and this quasi version of democracy, because what is happening today in Australia cannot be called democratic. Australia's police oppress, harass and attack peaceful citizens by depriving them of their fundamental freedoms and civil liberties. The whole world sees what's happening in Australia. Australia has contracted COVID madness. I think that put it exceptionally well. Yes, which brings us to just a quick uh, photograph from where was this? This is the, this is I think it's the M the M fifty seven near Liverpool, and I've no idea who did this, who put Plandemic on the overbridge, but whoever you are, you are a beautiful human being. Thank you very much. Okay, and uh, let's move on to Sajid Javid then, and unvaccinated care workers should get out and get another job. So uh, no jab, no job. Is this the new government policy, which they said would never be their policy? Yes, yes. This is the Conservative Party conserving all the things that we hold dear. You know, we're the party that looks after tradition, traditional British values. We're going to look after the sort of country we used to be, right? We're going to be great again, and we're going to do it by introducing something that even the Nazis hadn't done, right? We are going to, we're going to introduce um, some sort of apartheid state so that you cannot work if you don't get the job, in this case, in the care sector. And it actually gets worse than that. Uh, the health secretary said he's not prepared to pause the requirement for care home staff to be fully vaccinated by November 11, amid concerns that significant numbers of staff are reluctant to receive the vaccine. The government announced the decision to make vaccine, vaccine, com, vaccination compulsory for care home workers in August, a controversial move that sector and union leaders warned could lead to a mass exodus of staff. 
Mr. Javid told Radio 4 programme, if you work in a care home, you're working with some of the most vulnerable people in our country. He presumably, I interject here, thinks that the people who work in care homes are stupid and don't realise that. Uh, or maybe he thinks the public's stupid, I don't know. Uh, he continued, if you cannot be bothered to go and get vaccinated, then get out and go and get another job. So, end quote. So what Mr Javid is saying there is he believes that it's some sort of fecklessness uh, some sort of, oh, it's just too much bother to go and get vaccinated that's motivating people. If he thinks that, he is a moron. Uh, I suspect he doesn't think that, and what he's trying to do is use language as a weapon in the way that the left uh, so often uh, do in order to manipulate and control people. It's, of course, nothing to do with that. People are turning down and declining the vaccine, as is their right, for very good reasons, having considered it and having decided that it's important enough to them to weather all of the pressure and potentially lose their job. This suggests that the, you're dealing with people who have made a mature and determined decision. And for Mr Javid to paint it as cannot be bothered is, is, is really very poor indeed on his part. He continued, um, if you want to look after them, the care home residents, if you want to cook for them, if you want to feed for them, feed them, if you want to put them to bed, you should get vaccinated. If you're not going to get vaccinated, then why are you working in care? Again, a bizarre, um, a bizarre uh, uh, linking of two completely different things. How is your caring for another person in any way linked to the decisions you make as to how you medicate yourself, right? We're not talking about people who are going to work when they're ill and giving people a disease. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are responsible and who are interested in looking after their own health. This is, not only is this bizarre and quite infantile, but when you, when you remember it comes from the party that's meant to conserve traditional values, it's quite breathtaking. Uh David, I've got to respond to that and say, I look at what's happening here. We, we, we've discussed breakdown in the NHS, breakdown in the police. Now what we're watching is or orchestrated, planned breakdown in the care system. So uh, the comments being made are being made with the arrogance of politicians whose objective is to destroy the care system. And they're doing it extremely well. That's, that's why he's making the remarks. It's not foolishness. It's not the fact that he doesn't understand how the care system works. The objective of these politicians is to destroy the care system because when everything is destroyed, then, can, then the new system of government can come in, which we've seen a demonstration of in, in Australia, I would suggest. Well, we'll finish with Boris. Boris decided to support Mr Javid. Um, a, a union official said that vaccination remains the way out of the pandemic, again, repeating the official line, but coercing and bullying people can never be the right approach, said Christina McCanny uh, uh, of Unison. But Boris Johnson said that it was the right thing to ensure peace of mind for families. So I love this bit. This is beautiful. Right? The government by policy for two years now has communicated nothing but fear and alarm and has got people who have elderly relatives in care homes so panicked that they're terrified for what might happen to the residents, partly because 
Two years ago, all medical care was pulled away from the care homes. The care homes were seeded with people with respiratory illnesses, and there was a huge spike in deaths as a government policy. So government policy, both in terms of the psychological impact on the nation and the actual physical impact on the elderly, has induced people to be terrified. Boris now has the chutzpah to turn around and say to the care workers that because the relatives of these people are terrified. It's the care worker's responsibility to get the job, not to protect anybody, not to protect their health or the, or the care home residents' health, no, to reassure the minds of the relatives who have been so upset and agitated by two years of government propaganda. Yeah. Thank you for that, David. And uh, I think it's appropriate that uh, we're seeing some real passion there because this is an area which we should be passionate about. We've got an eye on the clock, but uh, we must just hop back to the BBC to show some really disgraceful spin out, uh, against anybody who dares challenge what's happening with vaccines. So this is the BBC engaging with essentially Florida uh, as cities and employers begin imposing mask and vaccination mandates across the United States, a debate rages over personal freedoms and public health. One side says mask and vaccine mandates are a step too far. The other argues we should follow science to protect ourselves and our communities. But the key line there in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has taken up the fight with the Biden administration. So let's see the first of... Uh, three little film clips. Uh, this is this is in fact one film clip on the BBC website, but I've broken it down into three sections so we can comment on it very quickly. So let's have a look at clip one. Joe Biden has tried begging. Please do the right thing. He's tried bribing. Calling on states to offer $100 for anyone willing to step up and get a vaccination shot. And now he's had enough. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. More than a million Americans tested positive for COVID in the last week alone, and 2,000 people are dying each day in the U.S. After a deadly summer surge of the Delta variant, the White House announced major steps to increase vaccinations, including mandating vaccines or weekly testing for all federal workers and contractors, all healthcare providers that receive federal funding, and Crucially, any business that employs more than 100 people. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. But Republican governors have been quick to push back against mask and vaccine mandates. And Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, is taking his fight a step further. If a government agency in the state of Florida uh, forces uh, a vaccine as a condition to employment, that violates Florida law. You will face a $5,000 fine for every single violation. He's sending the message that if you choose your individual rights over collective responsibility to get vaccinated, we will support you and here's how we are supporting you. And that message has resonated with voters like John Sissio. He had COVID and claims he doesn't need the vaccine. I support Governor DeSantis' stance against the vaccine mandates, 100%. I am a uh, Lieutenant Search and Rescue Specialist and paramedic for the city of Gainesville. Right now, they currently have a, a mandate 
to uh, vaccinate or they will terminate us. There's no option for um, you know mask wearing or weekly testing. Uh, there's no other option than you will do this or we will fire you. John is one of 200 employees now suing the city of Gainesville over its vaccine mandate. It's not a a fight against the vaccine, it's a fight against the mandate. The result that we hope to get out of the lawsuit is to just let dedicated employees just continue to do their job. I do love my job. So David, David, very quickly, what do you think of, uh, of that man in particular? So the, the BBC starts off obviously with the fear factor, all of the statistics and graphs and people are dying. Uh, but then it moves through to a particular man. What do you feel about him? Well, I, I, he seemed very genuine, and uh, and and the the point he was making, which was a simple one of we wish to be free in order to make up our own minds regarding our health, and we shouldn't be excluded from work because we don't follow the government diktat, is uh, one which in either Britain or America or Australia, up until very recently, did not need to be defended. No one would have thought it's even possible that such freedoms could, could be eliminated here, but we're watching them go in Australia, in Britain and in, in America. Uh, David, couldn't, couldn't agree more. I'd summed it up by thinking to myself, this seems like a very measured, reasonable man. Let's have a clip too and see how the BBC now progresses with, this, with their own video. While these lawsuits play out in cities across Florida, does Governor DeSantis's ambition lie beyond the state's borders? I think there's no doubt that Ron DeSantis sees Florida as the tip of the spear on these, um, these issues of pushing back against government mandates. And he taps into a fear that many people have, um, a fear of government doing too much, government interfering in our lives. He has pretty much embraced Trumpism wholeheartedly. Trump has suggested that if he were to run in 2024, that Ron DeSantis could be his vice presidential running mate. These Florida moms accused DeSantis of playing politics with their kids' lives by also opposing mask mandates in schools. Pre-K teachers were not masking, so my daughter actually came home with COVID. So we, we get a nice little uh, switch there. So we go from the reasonable man to the fact that we've now introduced that Trump is really the person be behind this. And then we start to get the emotional side coming in that we've got these three American mothers who are doing great work. Let's hear what the American mothers have to say. The spread of misinformation has caused parents to stand outside of schools protesting, making children essentially walk a gauntlet to get into their school, the, screaming things like, take off your muzzle to these children. This is all because these parents do not believe that masks work. We realized that nobody's going to stand up to these bullies. And at that point, we realized that the community is going to have to settle for us. Jules, Angela, and Paulina started Stop the Spread Sarasota, a group dedicated to pushing back on COVID misinformation in their community. I personally have a friend right now that's in the ICU on a ventilator. She has three daughters. Her youngest daughter is a junior here in Sarasota and it is a grim prognosis. And I thank 
I'm so thankful every day that I, I am doing something to contribute to prevent more children from the suffering because it's absolutely heartbreaking. The alt-right started calling us the Three Musketeers, which we then have adopted and taken as our own, and we are now the Three Masketeers. Your personal freedom ends when it encroaches on my personal freedom. So that's quite a statement to end with. If you dare cross these three ladies in any shape or form, then you are clearly wrong. So the BBC takes the reasonable man, he brands him with Trump, and then the BBC really uh, rubs people into the ground by saying, well, anybody who dares to protest at a school is really a, a, a vile, outrageous right-wing extremist. Uh, but the lady ended there with the key that if you dare cross me because I believe in the government's uh, policies, if you dare cross me, uh, then that is a major issue. David, I'm just going to say I, I'm almost lost for words again on, on how bad the BBC uh, reporting is, the bias and the propaganda and the twisting of the story to get the BBC's agenda across is really incredible. Yes, I mean, the, the use of graphs. Now, we know this is all about the statistics and it's, and it's quite easy to show there is no pandemic from the statistics if, it's, if they're, if they're uh, put forward in the right way. And of course, the BBC didn't do that. Um, the suggestion that the bullies are, in fact, those who are protesting against the mandate. Right. So the government says you must do this, you must do that, you must do this, or we will fine in prison. Uh, or prevent you from working, or prevent your child from going to school. But the people say, no, no, we want to be free the way we've always been free. They're the bullies, not the state. So it's it's accusing your opponents of that which you are guilty. Um, and um, comments like, you know, these people, they say masks don't work. Masks don't work. These people have read the studies. They, you know, they're, they're, they're more educated than the three mothers. The three mothers are presumably... Um, either victims of, uh, of the propaganda um, or, or have a, a worldview that, that, that induces them to, uh, to support authoritarianism. Without questioning it, which is the really sad thing. Well, look, excuse me, we're completely out of time. So why don't we, uh, <laughs> excuse me, David, end on this one. Yes, so this is one of the... Uh, one of the outstanding stars of the resistance against the um, uh, the, the the COVID narrative has been um, uh, Bob's cartoons, Bob Bob Moran, and uh, he he tweeted out here: "We're at war against the most disgustingly moral ideology ever conceived, the worst version of humanity imaginable." So he's not holding back, and uh, the cartoon here is a. A, an evil spectre with a syringe and someone protecting a child from it. And the text reads, stand firm. Yes, and uh, well, we, we should uh, just say that Bob Moran, of course, is uh, in a bit of trouble with the Telegraph at the moment. Yes, uh, he is. Uh, he seems to have been getting um, a lot of pushback because he's taken such a strong uh, stance on this. Um, and now his job seems to be uh, at risk. So we'll watch that one with great interest. Yes. Okay.
we're there, I think. Um, that's it. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be we, back in a few minutes on the live stream for some extra. We will be back. And uh, we just say that I'm sure you could pick up in the news today some of, some of the subjects we're now reporting are so serious. It's a job to know how to, how to get the message across in the time we've got available. Uh, but we're going to continue to analyse and uh, dig into what we think is really happening in the UK as opposed to what the mainstream media, the older media, would have us believe. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye.